Dr. Henman applies the wisdom of Scripture to the process of making changes in our daily lives. He explores the transforming power of grace through God's Holy Spirit in our recovery. His presentation begins with the birth of shame in the garden and ends with the power of the cross to transform our lives into a loving relationship with our big brother Jesus and our Father God. He blends scripture and examples from daily life to illustrate God's plan for growth and healthy self-esteem, which allows us to rest in His loving nature. Tonight's presentation will build on Dr. Henman's previous talks, Transforming Grace, Healing the Wounds that Bind, and God's Grace, and Our Freedom to Obey. It's as Jesus said in the Gospel of John, If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. When I were visiting a little bit earlier this, uh, this evening, and he shared with me that we've known each other for about eight years now. And I remember when I went to Jim, um, many of you who know Jim professionally as well as personally know that usually we meet Jim because we're at a low point in our lives. He is there to allow God's grace to flow through him. He is a receptacle of that grace. He has experienced it, and he then shares it with us. I uh, continue to see Jim from time to time. I like to say it's because uh, the old tapes, somehow the volume gets turned up on those old tapes. And I can go to Jim and, uh, like a good mechanic, he kind of turns that volume down on the old stuff. It helps me to hear the new once again. Now in that sense, since Jim is bringing to us a caring grace talk tonight, I, yeah, I, I, uh, I know this isn't, hasn't been a part of care in the past, and I do apologize if I offend anyone, but we are in uh, the Centenary United Methodist Church. And I would like to begin tonight, if you will allow me, begin with a word of prayer. So would you bow with me? Gracious Jesus, you are our big brother. And tonight, Lord, we lift up another member of our family to you. We lift up our brother Jim. Lord, as he comes, let him bring your message. For that is our prayer tonight. Amen. And now let me give you Dr. Jim Henman. I see the Christian gospel as being a perfect model of change, whether or not we believe in the author. And I want to be very clear tonight, the talk is not about salvation this evening, but about recovery and how Christianity and recovery fit together. Not that obviously salvation is not an extremely important issue, but there are others, Bob and many others, that are much more qualified to deal with that issue. But in my 25, 26, 27 years of more than full-time therapy, I have spent thousands and thousands of hours in people's lives noticing what helps people change, noticing what seems to get in the way. I find that the model in Christianity, the model of grace that God presents is truly a perfect model for change. If you accept Jesus, 
as your Savior, that's cool. If you do not accept Jesus as your Savior, you can still use the model, and it will still work in terms of recovery. It's that robust. It's that powerful. I'd like to draw your attention to some handouts in the back. One of them is the Awareness Night this Saturday, May 1st, in which uh, a group of different Christian recovery organizations are coming together to share. And feel free to pick one of those up in the back. In addition, we're having the Care Picnic on Sunday, May 23rd at Whitmore Park. That's also in the back. It's our ninth birthday of care. Kind of exciting. There's also some good volleyball. Yeah, great. I'd like to also start with a prayer, actually two prayers. The first is one that I, I use throughout the day, every day, and that is, Lord, allow me to see myself and others through your eyes and to respond to what I see in your nature. Really hear the difference between the name and the nature. I've seen much damage done in his name without his nature. I've seen many people turned off to Christianity because of things that have been done in his name, but had nothing at all to do with his nature. The talk tonight is about his nature, the person and nature of Jesus. There's a reason that God sent his son, in the form that he sent him. And I think it's extremely important that we keep that in mind as we go through this talk. He is our big brother. It does not mean that he's not also king of kings and lord of lords. But without understanding that particular unique relationship of being the older sibling. We miss a perfect model for change. Anytime you have a younger brother and sister that have an older brother that is very loving, that is very nurturing, that is very uplifting, the younger sibling invariably wants to be just like that older sibling. It's called modeling in psychology. I'm sure God didn't need psychology to tell him about modeling because he wrote about it 2,000 years ago, before psychology came into existence. But that's the nature of what we're going to be dealing with tonight, is, is how God himself, in his own words, talks about the process of change. And it's a personal relationship. I'm up here not because I have it together. Those of you that know me know that that's not humility, it's accuracy. I am not up here because I have mastered being a perfect Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm proud to be a Christian. I love my big brother more than life itself. And I'm an adolescent who continues to rebel. I resist. I go north to Turlock from Modesto frequently. And he continues to love me each step of the way. And the second prayer that I want to read is from Thomas Merton that really captures my relationship with my big brother. Thomas Merton, in prayer of trust and confidence. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. 
I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think that I am following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. Take a deep breath and notice how absolutely perfectly together I am in that prayer. Notice that Thomas Merton, like Jim Henman, isn't certain about himself. He's only certain about his big brother. The confidence does not come from ourselves. It comes from his nature that he gives to us. And it's extremely important to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we really can confuse things and it, it can cause a real, a real mess. Bob mentioned the Caring Grace groups. It's really exciting to me. It's been about a year now that they've been going. Uh, hopefully, we'll be having one starting here uh, during the day uh, in the next few months. Also, hopefully, one in Escalon sometime in the next few months. I'd like to read a paragraph from the Facilitating Caring Grace Groups. It gives you an idea of what a facilitator in a Caring Grace Group is and what a care group is itself. The role of the facilitator in the Caring Grace Group is to help provide an atmosphere of openness and grace within the meetings. As facilitator, you have the commitment to becoming more and more comfortable being uncomfortable in his service. Being facilitator is like a loving shepherd in a meeting in which you realize you are one of the sheep. Again, the facilitator isn't there because they have it together, but because they're willing to be used in his service. Your feelings of grateful humility for how your big brother Jesus has been toward you can be reflected in your approach to the group. It does not mean that you have it all together or know all the needed scriptures and sections in the handbook. What is important is that you support the safety in the meetings by affirming the guidelines in the introduction to caring grace groups. Everyone in the meeting is also responsible for supporting the safety. It is clear that you are not a therapist, just a caring Christian brother or sister on the path to. We can do amazing things helping each other grow. But just like Moses, most of you tend to think of Charlton Heston, Moses, as having it all together, being very confident. But go back to the book. Go back to the book. God went to Moses and said, I want you to go to Egypt and uh, set my people free. And Moses said, huh? No, I, you know, I can't talk, and, and, and I get tongue-tied. And, and You made a mistake, God. Now, can you imagine telling God he made a mistake? Well, this is Moses. This is how obedient Moses was at first. Because he forgot something that many of us forget. When God was sending Moses, Moses was the vehicle. God was the power. Moses forgot that. Moses is right. He was not capable any more than I, Jim Henman, am capable. But God, through me, is capable of amazing things. And that's the distinction. We need to understand that we are not our story. We get so bogged down in our story that we forget that who we are is actually becoming 
We are in transit. We are in a process. Now we can relax into that process, or we can do isometric tension exercises. The harder we try, the more we resist. The more we resist, the more upset we get, the harder we try. And it can be an incredible vicious circle. Another vicious circle, equally useful, is the difference between driving through the rearview mirror and driving through the windshield. Now, I don't mean looking for cops because you're speeding. I know some of you drive pretty fast. But many of us live our lives through the rearview mirror, looking at all the things that we've done wrong in the past, all the mistakes we've made, all the hurts that have happened to us. And that's how we define who we are. What happens if instead of looking through the windshield, through the rearview mirror, we look through the windshield instead? We look at where we're becoming rather than where we've been. Please hear that distinction. We need to understand that we are not a banana. We're an onion. Many people suffering from perfectionism want to peel one time for all time. You can do that with a banana. With an onion, it's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Tears come with peeling onions. When we let ourselves have fun with it, when we realize that God has a great sense of humor or he would not have picked me. He wouldn't have picked Moses. He sure would not have picked Paul or Saul, the most learned man of his time. What does he come up with? I know nothing but Christ and him crucified. The most learned man of the day, and that was the message that it boiled down to for Paul. Think about that. He picks the most unlikely people and then does the work through them. It's really important to keep in mind that the order of things. I've spent years working in people's lives. Adult children, the fractures that go on inside of our personality. The care self-help groups, like I say, it's our ninth birthday coming up uh, this, this next month, has been an exciting opportunity to watch people grow with people helping people. During this last year with the Caring Grace group, again, watching people strengthen their spiritual bonds to the Lord, their spiritual bonds to themselves, the spiritual bonds to each other in an atmosphere of safety. Take a deep breath and just notice where you're starting tonight. You'll notice again and again I'll be asking you to breathe. It's because when we breathe, we know we're alive. In addition, when we breathe, we tend to slow down slower than the speed of feelings. We need to feel where we're starting. We need to experience the truth of where we're starting. We may not like where we're starting, but the topic tonight is the truth can set you free. And the only way the truth can set you free is if you start where you're starting. If you allow yourself the permission to notice rather than judge where you're starting. Do you like where you're starting? If you do, cool. Great. If you don't like where you're starting, cool. Great. 
at least feel good about noticing that you don't like where you're starting. That's the beginning of grace, isn't it? The freedom to feel good about noticing that you don't like where you're starting levels the playing field and allows you then to choose differently. To choose differently, imperfectly differently, over and over and over again. We're going to start tonight in the garden, the Garden of Eden. From Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Ew. Yuck. Think about that. If you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Now, Adam and Eve did, in fact, eat from the fruit, and they didn't physically die. So that must not mean what, that must not be what God actually meant, is it? What died was the innocence. That perfect relationship of perfect innocence died when they gained the knowledge of good and evil. God never intended us to have the knowledge of good and evil without it being filtered through his loving eyes. When we see how far short we fall without his loving eyes to mediate it, to filter it, to soften it, the natural effect is overwhelming. Genesis 2.25, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They were experiencing themselves in his reflection. In their imperfection, there was no shame. Because what he is reflecting back to them was not condemnation for their fallibility, but rather his perfect love. There was no shame. Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from <laughs> we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a con game. What a con game. Let's look at some of the presuppositions that went on in this situation. First of all, Eve added to God's word. And we've been doing it ever since. God never said, you must not touch it. He said, don't eat it. Eve added, don't touch it. Later, when we demanded the law, God gave ten simple laws. Man improved on it. There were no one could keep it straight. And it just could break the back of anyone trying to carry it. Satan says, you will not surely die. He questions. Before he asks the question, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See, it's a confusion technique. 
he gets her questioning, then to that, she adds her own, and then he comes in for the punchline, doesn't he? And what happened? We all died to innocence. We all died to innocence. We need to be aware of the assumptions that we make. We need to be aware when we add to God's perfect plan. When we try to be good enough to earn his free gift. It transforms it from that perfect plan for change into something that can literally crush one's spirit and literally create such a heavy burden that you feel a sense of inadequacy and shame and just awful, awful feelings begin to come. What are the questions that you have about reality? Do you believe there's a God? I know he believes that you exist. Do you believe that he exists? What is the cost of believing? What is the cost of not believing? We need to become aware of the assumptions, the questions that we ask, how we use stumbling blocks to avoid the most important questions and issues that are a matter of life and death and a matter of quality living. Now let's look at shame, the autoimmune disease. Now the serpent has suggested to her, you aren't gonna really die, she goes, okay. So they go ahead and eat it. They eat from the knowledge, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Now what's Adam doing? What man has been doing ever since? Sort of sitting on the sideline, picking his nose, taking no leadership whatsoever, and going along with the program without any leadership. To this day, it's great for business, but it's not how God intended it. Genesis 3, 7 to 13. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to man, where are you? Now, I want you to really capture this for a moment. You think God didn't know where they were? Think about that, okay? You think God didn't know where Adam and Eve were, hiding behind a bush? But that's how much respect God has for man. He gives Adam and Eve the opportunity to say, oops, I'm here, I screwed up, I blew it, I'm right here behind this bush, because I feel so stupid. Now, I'm used to that feeling. Any of you used to that feeling? It was new for Adam and Eve. The knowledge of good and evil really helps us screw up. It's a really wonderful way to screw up. And he answered, I heard you in the garden. Uh, Adam answers back, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, you put her there, God! Notice 
how he owns responsibility. The man, uh, she gave me from the fruit, and I ate it. She did the bad thing, I just ate it. It's been that way ever since. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Pass the buck. The knowledge of good and evil was something God never intended us to have. Never. Once we got the knowledge of good and evil, without his loving filter, the natural result was shame, which is self-destroying self, an autoimmune disease. And it was the birth of the defense mechanisms, blaming other people, denial, rationalization, anything to avoid truth. And yet truth can set you free. What if God, when he came, received a very different response from Adam and Eve? What if God came and said, where are you? And Adam said, over here, feeling real stupid. Lord, I blew it. I did not have leadership with Eve. And because of that, she fell, and I fell. And whatever you feel is just, I will accept. I trust your love, and if whatever the punishment, I accept it, because I blew it, Lord. How different the book would have turned out. But the knowledge of good and evil made that next to impossible. Shame is a destructive feeling of self-rejection and self-hatred. It's saying, I am bad, I am wrong, I am the mistake. It's an issue of identity. And yet as Christians, it says in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I wonder if maybe Paul meant there is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Or if instead, he probably really meant now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which do you think it is? Because somehow we don't get it. We keep forgetting that. And we condemn ourselves and we condemn each other, often in his name. And it makes it harder and harder to come to him. By comparison, guilt can be a healthy, useful signal. We're going the wrong direction in the present. It is a feeling signal to an action. I'm doing something wrong. I get a feeling signal that I'm doing something wrong. I turn around. That's a healthy thing. When guilt about a past event that is no longer current is going on, it really turns into shame. It turns into self-hatred. Conviction is guilt in the present. It's saying you're making a mistake you really don't want to do this. Yeah, I do. No, you really don't. Yeah, I do. And there goes the battle. Do you think God welcomes that battle? Do you think he knows we're going to argue with him? If we're really honest? If we're being truthful? Of course. Of course he knows that. Think of your own children, those of you that have children. Would you rather have your children 
be honest with you and, 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 and wrestle with you about issues? Or hide behind a bush, drowning in shame? Do you have a preference? Do you think God has a preference? By comparison, regret is a healthy grieving reaction. It says, I'm sorry this happened. If Adam and Eve had had regret, it would have been a very different experience. I feel badly that it happened. But because the knowledge of good and evil, we have the okayness trap, the issue of perfectionism. This, this is from the handbook. This impossible trap works as follows. The harder we try to prove that we are okay, the bigger the question of our okayness becomes. The bigger the question becomes, the more insecure we feel. The more self-conscious we are, the worse our performance becomes. There is no way out of this vicious circle as long as we believe that we must prove our value. Again, take a deep breath. Notice how your life fits into that okayness trap. What are the ways that you're so busy trying to prove that you're okay that you're not able to experience being in the present doing whatever it is that you're doing? But instead becoming so critically self-conscious that you aren't really able to be focusing on what you're doing, but rather focusing on looking at yourself, listening to yourself. On the way over here tonight for the talk, as I was driving, all I was praying is, Lord, let me get out of the way. You give the talk. If I start giving the talk, I tend to get self-conscious. When he's giving the talk, I get excited. When I get excited, I give a better talk. So I'll get excited, he'll give the talk, and you guys get the benefit. You know, a pretty good arrangement. About the truth about freedom. From Genesis 3, 21 to 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now here they are. They've rebelled against him. What does he do? He makes clothing for them to cover their shame. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Now growing up, I always thought Adam and Eve blew it, God got mad and kicked him out. Isn't that kind of how you mostly feel about it? That God is somebody, if you cross God, if you cross God, he is going to X you out. Cool. Somebody you can warm up to, right? Somebody you can feel safe going to with your fallibility? No. If that's the true view of God, we've got a problem. But that's not what the book says. What the book says is God was afraid that man would eat from the tree of life, meaning for immortality, while drowning in shame. Because that's the state that Adam and Eve were in at that moment, drowning in shame. It was a compassionate, it was a loving thing to 
remove man from the garden. Only by removing man from the garden was man even capable of dealing with this issue of shame. Can you imagine if for all eternity we were drowning in the shame that Adam and Eve were feeling there at that time? That wasn't God's plan. And so he protected us from ourselves, as he has ever since, by giving us freedom to find him again, even with the burden of the knowledge of good and evil. I'd like you to look at the definitions of freedom. Freedom is the ability to do what we want to do. First part's cool, huh? Should we just stop at that? Freedom is the ability to do what we want to do, even when someone tells us to do it. Do you know how many times we give up freedom because someone tells us to do something? No. No, you can't make me. My mom thought she was very, very docile and passive. We're at a therapy uh, workshop, and I picked on her, as I have for probably 50-some years. And I told her to do something just as she was starting to do it, and her hand immediately re uh, pulled back. It's called a polarity response. It's very normal for human beings to do that. Even though you're wanting to do something, when someone tells you to do the thing you want to do, you tend to naturally resist. Think about that. Think about that. How we give up freedom by trying to make sure no one tells us what to do, even when we're wanting to do it. Now let's look at the second definition. Freedom is the willingness to accept the consequences of our choices. That's not freedom. Doesn't sound very good, does it? What separates freedom from license is that very thing, that we're willing to take the consequences of our choices. When we are willing to do that, we truly are free. I'm willing to sit up here, sit up here. I already did it. I was going to say, and make a mistake in front of all of you. That was it intentional, really. But you guys need to do it perfectly, right? You guys need to be perfect in your recovery. You need to be perfect in your Christianity. I'll do the errors. I'll make the mistakes. You do it perfectly. Fair enough? I'm good at making mistakes, and you guys are good at being perfect, right? Works out pretty good. Grace allows us to see ourselves again through God's loving eyes through his loving reflection, through his mirror. It allows powerful vulnerability. In the handbook, powerful vulnerability is defined as it being more important to learn and grow than to be right. It's more important to learn and grow than be right. That's powerful vulnerability. It's the, it's the attitude that allows the Spirit to work through us. When we have that powerful vulnerability, the ecology, the atmosphere inside of us, is conducive to the Holy Spirit. Grateful humility is the attitude that comes from the truth. We all are 
way off the mark. It's the truth. We don't have to hide behind a bush because that's not who we are. We are not our flaws. Who we are is becoming. That's who God sees us to be. From John 5, 19 and 20, Jesus gave them the answer. Now, really, this, this was one of my last ones that I came up with. Not the last one tonight, but in preparation for the talk. I tell you the truth, the Son can do nothing by himself. This is Jesus speaking. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Jesus had perfect freedom to perfectly be what his Father wanted him to be. Think about that. Here he was, God himself, in human form. But in his own definition of himself, the son can do nothing by himself, but only through his connection with his father. Feel that. This is your big brother, and your big brother is saying, I can't do it other than when God does it through me. So how is it? How is it that we expect more of ourselves than Jesus expected of himself? If that's not arrogance, I don't know what it is. Yes, Jesus, I know you can't do it without, without God, but <laughs> I can. I'm cool. I can do it on my own. Jesus can't, but I can? Think about that. This whole talk is about thinking about. Because we have come in 1999 to become basically brain dead as a culture when it comes to really looking and thinking and questioning and searching for truth. It's left us bankrupt with knowledge and no wisdom. We need to be thinking about these questions. We need to be struggling with these issues. We've got to be doing that. From 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the are being transformed, really hear that, are being transformed into the image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. It doesn't say, boom, you got it. And once you got it, you can't not got it. It's a process of transforming. And do you notice who does the work? The Holy Spirit. Now here's how most Christians do it. Sort of like white knuckled sobriety. I've got 37 years of sobriety and I am grateful and I can't stand it but I'll continue and I am grateful for my sobriety. 
or I'm grateful for my Christianity, or I'm grateful for whatever gives you a headache from that isometric tension. It's exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. And worse than that, it prevents the plan from working. Because while we have our sphincters up around our necks trying to be perfect, or we're busy doing that, the Holy Spirit can't do its job. The Spirit can't do what the Spirit is able to do when we're blocking the way with our white-knuckled intensity of doing it ourselves. That was never God's plan for us to do it ourselves. But for us to love him for loving us and in wanting to be like him, being drawn toward him by the Holy Spirit. Our job is to want it. Our job is to allow it. Our job is to get out of the way and allow the Spirit to do what the Spirit can do. And yet, that's not how we tend to do it. Colossians 3, uh, 1-4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is in you, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above. It's really important not to be confused by the facts. I can't tell you how many times I'll sit across from somebody and I'll say that, you know? Don't be confused by the facts. And they look at me like, what are you talking about? The facts are the least important part of the process of change. We need to understand that we are already sitting in heaven with Christ. We've already won. We're still picking our noses. We're still having bad breath. We're still terribly unhousebroken. Terribly unhousebroken. But that's not how God sees us. He sees us through the filter of Christ. So he sees us perfect. That's not denial. That's the free gift that the Lord gave us so that we could be back in relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6 Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Guys, you've got to hear the difference. The Spirit is generative. It builds, it grows, it's alive. The law kills. I have seen so many people shrivel up inside, feeling self-conscious and shame because they didn't feel they're living up to the law. And yet in Galatians it says, if you try to live up to the law, you have thrown Christ's gift in his face. Now if I was hanging up there on the cross, And Heidi said to me, 
no thanks, I'll, I'll do it on my own. Uh, I, I don't need your, your, your free gift, I'll earn it myself. I'd get down off the cross and deck her. But God doesn't have my nature, I'm gaining his nature. Do you hear the difference? I'm gaining his nature, one onion skin at a time, with a lot of tears and kind of foul smell sometimes. Foul smell from that onion peeling. But I'm gaining his nature, it's not the other way around. I had the opportunity to coach my younger son Nathan in roller hockey. I did it because they didn't have a coach. I'd never played hockey. I'd never seen a hockey game. I didn't know the rules to hockey. So I volunteered to coach. I'd coach soccer. I figured it couldn't be that different, just had wheels. And they didn't have a coach. Now they'd all do it until somebody comes along. Well, no one came along. But they were slaughtered that first game without a coach. They were just beaten mercilessly. And I said, I, I can't do any worse than that. The first season, the Ducks, that's, that's the team name, the Mighty Ducks, we lost every game. Not as bad as the first one, but we lost every game. The team that was in first place, whose coach happened to run the rink, purely coincidental, had the best equipment, had the best practice times. We were practicing over Prescott in the parking lot with a coach who didn't know what the rules were. And they would taunt the Ducks. You bunch of losers, these kids would say. And I overheard one of his exchanges. And Nathan said, that's my younger son, you know something, we may not be winning the game, but with that attitude of yours, you're the loser. I go, yes, Nathan, oh, that is so cool. I had to share that with somebody sometime. That was just such a wonderful, wonderful gift that I got. He was right. You can lose every game and be a winner, or you can win every game and be a loser. Don't be confused by the facts. The fact is character. The fact is choices. The fact is attitudes that counts in God's eyes. Not whether you win or lose. We've got to get that straight. The last game of the season, we play this team. I want to beat them so bad I can taste it. But, you know, what's the chance? The team was inspired. We beat them. It was like the movie. It was better than the movie. It was one of the most significant moments of my life. <laughs> Truly. There's a few others that are more, but this was right up there. It felt so good. I coached another season. We won every game. They never changed from their original attitude. They never teased the other teams. They didn't put the other teams down. They kept that same character. I was more proud of their character than I was about their winning. But as a coach, I believed in those kids before they believed in themselves. That's what my big brother does with me. 
That's what he can do for you. He believes in my capacity to be becoming like him. He believes in your capacity to be becoming like him by allowing the Holy Spirit through us to move forward in his likeness. That's reality. The reality is there is a God, in my opinion. I respect people who do not believe that. I would never force it. I have a lot of clients that don't even know I'm a Christian. I have a lot of Christian clients that don't know I'm a Christian because I don't talk Christian real well. Um, never mastered talking Christian. I'm just a little bit too unhousebroken and, and too down to earth for some people's taste. But so was he. Here was a man who was perfect. Perfect. And the quote-unquote bad folks of the day, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, the, the people that were the bad people, you know, those people that we don't want to associate with because they have problems. You know, not like us that have it together. We're cool, they're not. Well, here's the man, Jesus, who was, in fact, perfect. Guess what? They loved him. Now, can you imagine, say, at a care meeting or an AA meeting or an OA meeting or, or, or some meeting where people are coming together to be real, having Jimmy Swaggart walk in? I want you to know that it is wrong to not be perfect like me. Amen. While he is doing all kinds of things with prostitutes. Go figure. The fact is, Jesus was not like that. Jesus was so approachable that people who knew they truly, truly didn't have it together felt comfortable with him. The only people that didn't feel comfortable with him were the Pharisees. The religious of the day. That concludes Disc A. Please insert Disc B.